Elizabeth was once a garden place with all her glories common, and men did live a holy race and worship Jesus face to face in Adam on thy amen. Hello and welcome to another edition of Mormon Matters Podcast, your weekly romp, thoughtful yet provocative through all things Mormon, including current events, popular culture, politics, and contemporary issues. I'm your host, John DeLynn, and today we have with us two special guests. Uh, Jay Nelson Seawright is an assistant professor of political science at a university in the Chicago area and an amateur Mormon studies enthusiast. Jay writes about Mormon themes online at the website buycommonconsent.com when he is not busy doing the work he's actually paid to do. Welcome, Jay. Thank you, John. And David King Landreth lives with his wife, Shannon, and four daughters in Boston, Massachusetts. David blogs at mormonmentality.org and is the creator of ldselect.org. Welcome, David. Thank you, John. All right. Well, we have um, uh, a few interesting things to talk about today. Let's kick off with just some uh, Mormonism in the news. Uh, we should probably begin on a bit of a solemn, somber note. Uh, those of you who have been following the news will know that um, Elder James E. Faust, a second counselor in the first presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he passed away uh, this week. So our condolences to the Faust family. Um, Elder Faust, of course, had a distinguished career um, uh, as a lawyer, uh, as a politician, um, and it even appears as though he was appointed by John F. Kennedy to the Lawyers' Committee for Civil Rights. Um, one of my favorite things about uh, Elder Faust was that he was a Democrat. It was always nice to know that we had at least uh, a few of them. So, um, so that's one thing in the news. You guys have a have a quick comment about uh, Elder Faust, either of you? Well, I um. From my point of view, in spite of the fact that he's a Democrat, I'm willing to pay him one of my highest compliments, and that's that he was the embodiment of Republican virtues and ideals. He was wise. He had sound judgment, a keen intellect. He had integrity, loyalty, sensitivity. He was financially responsible. So he's the kind of Democrat you could get behind as a as a staunch Republican, huh? Yeah. Jay, any, any quick thoughts on Elder Faust? Well, you know, there there are always some people who speak to you more than others, and and the fact of the matter is that um, for me personally, although I know he did a lot for a lot of other people, um, I can't remember a whole lot of his speeches that really moved me. But I do know that as a leader within the church, as an administrator, and as person who's taken a lot of the burden in the first presidency, he's he's done a lot and will be missed. They've also written that um, he's he was considered maybe Gordon B. Hinckley's one of his best or closest friends. I had read that he. They served in adjoining uh, state presidencies geographically in Salt Lake City. Is that what you guys have read? Mm-hmm. So a loss of a dear friend for President Hinckley. I'm sure that's uh, that's going to be, uh, I don't know, that's going to be a difficult thing for President Hinckley. But anyway, our, our condolences again to the Faust family. Um, other, other items in the news uh, this week. Um, Mitt Romney won the Iowa straw poll, apparently. Um, Jay, since you know a little bit about uh, politics, any quick yeah. thoughts on that? Well, 
it's worth pointing out that this is the Iowa straw poll is a kind of Republican fundraising event more than a real election. You're, you're charged money. You have to have a ticket in order to vote. And so what this really is is a kind of test of your party organization, your campaign organization, more than a, an electoral contest or, or an opinion poll. Um, furthermore, this, this particular Iowa straw poll was compromised by the fact that three of the leading candidates uh, – Thompson, Giuliani, and McCain decided not to participate. So there's there's a little bit of a almost it was a fait accompli that that Romney was going to win. But in spite of that, Romney has gained a little ground in national surveys, um, probably on the basis of that win. So, for instance, in the American Research Group survey from August seventh, he gained six points from where he was before. He's still in second to third, sometimes fourth place, depending on the, the specific poll you look at. But he's gaining a little ground. I mean, yeah, he really had to win it because, the, uh, as you mentioned, Thompson, McCain, and Giuliani didn't participate. But one of the reasons that they didn't participate was because Romney is so strong in Iowa. That's right. Romney, so they didn't want to get a black eye from being beaten by Romney. That's right. Two of the only states in the country, there, there are about five or six states where Romney has a really clear lead in a primary, but two of those are Iowa and New Hampshire. And so strategically, that could be good because that may sway you know, the electorate and news coverage in his favor. On the other right. hand, normally, yeah, normally, normally that might happen. Candidate wouldn't be in the news at all, but because of those two things, he's actually, people are looking at that as a potential catapult beyond right. the people that are in front of him. There, there, there's a downside for him as well, though, which is that this year the um, the campaign cycle is so front-loaded that there isn't a whole lot of time between Iowa and New Hampshire and then the South Carolina and Super Tuesday primaries. And in those primaries, Romney is in a much weaker position. In South Carolina right now, he's, um, I think, 18 points behind Giuliani. So the, the, it's likely that his momentum might get spent really quickly unless he can build a lot by, by January. Now I just I just read on politico.com that that Michigan the state of Michigan has actually moved its primary to like one of the first few weeks in uh in January. And the way it was making it sound was that Romney's going to get Michigan, Iowa and New Hampshire before he has to go into South Carolina and because his he's you know originally from Michigan his dad was mm-hmm. popular in Michigan that might actually be a good bump. Had you read that Jay? It's very difficult to know what the order of primaries is going to be. Uh, as part of this moving earlier process, the states are jockeying amongst each other and trying to jump in front of each other. Iowa and New Hampshire will always jump ahead of anyone else, even if that means moving into 2007. <laughs> and, it, and this is something that they've actually talked about. Um, the other Super Tuesday states, if Michigan moves forward, they're likely to move forward too. So it's hard to know what's actually going to happen right now. So, Jay, just to put you on the spot... Uh how optimistic are you for Romney's chances to win the Republican nomination, you know, in August of 2007? Mm. Well, you know, looking at the survey data that are out right now, um, you know, Romney's had a lot of good news. He's he's had a lot. He's spent a lot more money than any other Republican candidate up to this point on, on things other than internal staff, as far as I know. Um, and in spite of that, there really are only a handful of states where he's looking good. I have a hard time seeing how you can get nominated without winning California, New York, Texas, Florida, or Ohio. Um, so, so there's a lot of ground for him to make up. It's possible, but I wouldn't bet any money on it. So this notion of winning early gives you a strong momentum that's probably not going to fly in this case? 
it's just hard to say. You know, the, the people point to the historical record since 1980, but this primary season is very different than any primary season we've ever had before because of the institutional changes. And then there's the fact that Romney is in a lot of ways a pretty unique candidate. He has these pockets of regional appeal, but for the most part, a lot of people in the U.S. don't really know who he is. And so he, he has a lot of work to do to try to make this work. So, David, you still bullish on Romney? I am. I mean, he's, a, he's obviously a fourth-place candidate, um, and I think he stands a better chance than any fourth-place candidate in recent history. Um, well, I agree with I'm that. Little, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little leery of the, um, you know, this is a unique season. I mean, every year they say this is a, a different offering for the Oscars, so who knows? And then after the Oscars <laughs> is done, people say, well, of course, last year such-and-such such was going to win Best Picture. And it's always that way, you know, we find this pattern that things fit into after the fact, but everything approaching is unique and different. And the truth is, is that um, eight months is a political eternity. And, uh, you know, Fred Thompson could take the number one spot. Fred Thompson could completely sizzle. And there's, you know, double digits up for grabs as far as primary voters. People like to vote for a winner. Um, if there's a lot of people on the fence, that kind of thing can sway them. Uh, and that's really the impact the early wins have. Um, and it's just hard to tell. Uh, but uh, I, I do tend to be bullish. I think he stands... Um, a better chance over the long term than Giuliani, who I think is increasingly looking to be a little bit nutty, um, and then Mc and McCain, who has a surprisingly bad organization for a candidate as seasoned as he is. Yeah, I, I'd say stick a fork in McCain, but that's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. yeah, but if we're talking about the candidates who are further down the list, another candidate who's not that far behind Romney in the national polls right now, who who bears looking at is Mike Huckabee who appeals to a lot of the same base that Romney's trying to build, but doesn't have, um, well, frankly, the, the Mormon factor working to complicate And he's from, he's from the South. And when you look, yes. at, um, when you look at elections since FDR, the, president, the presidential candidate from the, the, of the two, who's from the most Southern state, has won nearly every time. He just, uh, Huckabee doesn't seem presidential to me. I know it sounds kind of shallow, but when I look at him and listen to him, he's smart, he's funny, but he doesn't seem presidential, so it's hard for me to well, take Huckabee seriously. Nomination. You know what? Any, anybody seems presidential after they've been president for six months. It's yeah. seeing them on CNN that makes them that. Right. Or even when they win the nomination. That you yeah. know makes people look at them differently. Sure, sure. Okay, well... Um, so we'll we'll keep an eye on on Romney over the next several weeks and months. I'm sure. A couple other news items. Uh, I guess there was a pretty severe earthquake in Peru. Was it like an 8.0 on the Richter scale? Do you guys know? Something, something like yeah, that. something heavy. Yeah. But the reason we're mentioning it here is because the Salt Lake Tribune reports that um, seven members of the LDS Church um, were found among the dead. So again, our condolences to the. Um, to all the all the fatalities in Peru, but also to the the members of the LDS Church who have uh, who have suffered from that. Um, also, the the there's a mine in Utah. For those of you following the news, um, was it seven miners were were trapped down in a, in a mine in Utah? Is it seven? Six, I think. Six, six. and um, and I guess apparently they were trying to dig a third or a fourth hole, and it collapsed, and at least three more. Um, at least three have lost their lives just in the recovery effort. So, um, again, a little bit of stuff there. And just to conclude, um, I guess uh, you guys forced me to include this, so I will. Apparently there's been uh, a new executive director of Sunstone who's been named. It is yours truly. And uh, 
We had our Sunstone Symposium last week. It was a great time. And uh, if I had to just um, sort of give a recap on what we talked about, uh, Sunstone continues under its banner of faith-seeking understanding. One of the things that I'm trying to get out is just that people of faith, um, we, we want to make sure Sunstone remains a place where people of faith feel welcome. And so uh, we're going to do all we can to make sure that that continues. And, if, um, uh, and in addition, we sort of have four words that we're using to rally around our strategy. And those words are independent, open, thoughtful, and constructive. And so we want to maintain sort of a place of independence where anyone can come. All ideas are on the table. Uh, uh, people of all, all shades of faith or non-faith are also welcome as long as the uh, conversations are thoughtful, however we define that, and uh, constructive. So that's the direction we're hoping to um, point Sunstone in. Uh, I think it's always tried to be that, and sometimes it's been more successful than others. But anyway, that's the news roundup. Any, any final thoughts, guys, before we go into our main two topics? Congratulations, John. Oh, thanks. Huzzah. <laughs> <laughs> we're all pulling for you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, well, we have two, um, I guess we have two main topics for today. Uh, uh, the first is, um, uh, you know, we definitely don't want to appear like we're, you know, Las Vegas uh, odds makers putting bets on, um, you know, who the replacement is for, for Elder James E. Faust. But, you know, the truth is uh, that position matters. Uh, people have thoughts and feelings, and, and people always at this point in this type of process start wondering Number one, who will be chosen to be uh, second counselor in the first presidency? And then, um, in addition, who might be chosen as the next apostle? Uh, we definitely mean to do this with much reverence and respect for Elder Faust. But, uh, you know, I, you know, Jay, let's start with you. Do you have any, any thoughts on either of those two positions or uh, options? Well, you know, the one that's most interesting to me, I have to say, is the replacement or the, the new member of the the quorum of the 12. Um, I, you know, the reason that would be important to me is one of the people who's already in the governing body of the church is probably going to slide in and fill the, the second counselor slot in the first presidency. But when you bring in a new member into that group, there's there's the potential for that to really change the, the composition and sometimes the, the set of issues that the leadership is aware of. You know, and I think... Um, We've seen some interesting things in the last few um, years with, with the first apostle born outside the U.S. in, I don't know, 150 years maybe? I'm not sure. Um, in uh, Elder Uchtdorf? In Elder Uchtdorf, exactly. Which we, um, my wife and I were living in Latin America when he was brought into the quorum. And for Latin American members of the church, that was a huge thing because it was an opportunity for... Um, someone from outside the U.S. to be represented. Now, if it's a huge thing for Latin Americans that a German who doesn't speak any Spanish and has lived basically in Europe in the United States is in the Quorum of the Twelve, how amazing would it be for someone from Latin America to be brought in? We have members who are second and third and fourth generation, very faithful people, and I'm, I'm excited for the day when, when someone from that region gets brought into the leadership. Or even an African-American, for example, would be exciting. Yeah, sure. Or or an African who lives in America like Barack Obama. 
<laughs> well, I heard he's hearing the discussions. Yeah, I, 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 we, what we really need is a Mormon versus Mormon presidential. I guess. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure Hillary received the discussions at one point or another too. Don't you think? Oh, yeah, I sure. heard. I heard that they've taught something like 10% more first discussions in the U.S. than there are families in the U.S. So, <laughs> on average, she's heard it once. Um, yeah, okay. So, so in terms of demographically, Jay, you'd like, you, you, it would warm your heart and mind probably to see some diversity. Any, any personal um, people that, that you really resonate with that you feel like you know, would be the right man at the right time, so to speak, and then we'll go to David. <laughs> Should I list my favorite um, church leaders from Latin America? No, I, I'm going to skip on that. Okay. Uh, it's not my place to name people, but but just to express my, I guess, hopes and prayers about about maybe the direction that, of inclusion. Okay. David, what do you think? Any thoughts? Um, you know, on a humorous uh, note, it's, you know, in the f- for the replacement in the First Presidency, it could be Joseph Bittner Worthlin, who's his... Uh, his half-first cousin, uh, Gordon B. Hinckley's half-first cousin, or even Richard G. Hinckley, who is uh, Gordon B. Hinckley's son, currently a 70. But, uh, you know, those could be very good candidates, given that um, there tends to be uh, um, mm-hmm. a familial relationship among most of them. Yeah, That would be quite, uh, quite a decision for Gordon B. Hinckley to choose his own son. It's not without precedent. Did did Brigham Young put his son in in the first presidency? Um, he made him an apostle. I can't right. remember right. what his other affiliation was. I know that he eventually became a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. So maybe to bring together David's idea and my idea, what we really need is an aggressive marrying program in which um, the descendants of current apostles marry Latin Americans and Africans. <laughs> Well, there's certainly precedent for the notion that this bloodline has a dynastic value. Yes, there is. And so, you know, we could treat them like the kings and queens of Europe and marry them into these families in order to create a desirable output. I'm not to sure create, we get... To create I, international alliances with yeah, exactly. But you also get hemophilia when you do that. <laughs> <laughs> right, we need healthy apostles. Yeah, we don't this want... True. Yeah, we don't want inbred, inbred leadership. That's just <laughs> oh my... Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, let's just invoke a miracle there and move on. <laughs> well, I, you know, it is an interesting time because, uh, you know, as we know from when President Hinckley was brought into the first presidency, um, depending on the age of that person brought in, that person can end up having a, a phenomenally significant um, influence on, on how the church gets shaped, especially as the the president and the first counselor might become more advanced in age and, and their health might waver. So it is a it is a very significant decision. It'll be interesting to see, you know, whether he, he goes um uh you know sort of high up in the in the rankings, so to speak, or you know, dips down into the middle. Um mm-hmm. But, uh, well, whoever whoever is chosen, it it is as you sort of for the reasons you've just mentioned, likely to be a substantial burden. So that that person who steps into the first presidency and is going to have a lot of the practical weight of running the church for the next few years, is going to need our um, sustaining prayers. Yeah. Do the, do they um do they announce it at general conference, or um do they announce it before? Do we know? Anybody know? 
my my understanding is that we will usually get an announcement before, but um, that that the official you know sustaining will happen at General Conference. There. Yeah. All right. Well, um, it will be fun to watch. Uh, David, do you have any final comments before we close out this section? None. All right. Well, um, again, our, our um, thoughts and prayers are, are with the Faust family, with President Hinckley. Uh, in all this sort of talk, of course, as believers, we believe that this is an inspired process and that, and that uh, you know, Heavenly Father will do what he feels is best and, and we'll all benefit therefrom. So in all the light speaking, uh, I guess I should take the time to reinforce that. So I guess it's time to move on to the main topic. And this, uh, Jay, this was your idea, but I think it was a fantastic one. Jay, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your good idea? All right. Well, so the backstory here, you know, one of the things that's come up a few different times in the Mormon blogs, which I spend uh, more time than I probably should reading, uh, is the idea that a lot of people in Mormonism haven't read the the many hundreds of books that have been written about Mormonism. My favorite instance of this was a post that my good friend Christine Hagland wrote a few months back instructing people to immediately stop blogging until they've read her, her curriculum of, I think, five or six books. It was like summer, now, summer reading list, right? Was the yeah, title. yeah, mandatory summer reading. You, you can't speak a word about Mormonism again until you've uh, <laughs> completed this assignment. Uh, I, not, not going that far along those lines, it's simply true that the, the, the library of scholarly work on Mormonism is huge and overwhelming. And my idea would be that, you know, all of us could talk about, you know, the books that we've read outside of maybe, you know, the, the missionary library that have been most helpful or most interesting or most enlightening to us as a way of just giving a few recommendations that could maybe get people, get people's feet wet, you know, a, 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 a way to start with some of the highlights without having to read, you know, 40 books on Wilfred Woodruff's um, dietary consumption <laughs> right up front. All right. Well, let's... Let's start with sort of um, the general must-reads, and then we'll go into more specific topics. But do do any of you have sort of a book, I, I know I have one or two, that sort of is a good survey of Mormon issues, Mormon studies, or Mormon history? We'll start with Jay and then David. I, I have to say, and this is you know such a big book, it comes in two volumes, so it probably is too intimidating, but I'm going to say it anyway. The um, D. Michael Quinn's Mormon hierarchy books are are the book that introduced me to Mormonism as something other than just what I do on church on Sunday. I, they, these are a, a kind of history of the church from the point of view of the top leaders, from Joseph Smith up to very nearly the present. And I don't think there's another book out there that covers as much ground or does it as well. So that 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 would be my kind of general purpose recommendation. Now, now Jay, I guess. That's, that's pretty heavy to whip out your Michael Quinn stick as the first book on this list. You know, is, is that, I mean, you know, what do you think about the fact that he's so controversial and, and uh, you know, it was one of the September 6th and... Well, you know, people get excommunicated. Books don't get excommunicated in Mormonism. And evidence for this would be that, um, you know, Richard Bushman's well-regarded biography of Joseph Smith that recently came out cites D. Michael Quinn heavily. 
you know, in scholarly circles, these things work a little bit differently than they maybe do on Sunday. If if Quinn were invited to give a talk in church in my ward, I'd be a little bit surprised. But reading his books, that's a different story. Um, specifically, the titles I have in mind are The Mormon Hierarchy, Origins of Power, and The Mormon Hierarchy, Extensions of Power. Now, what do you... And I've read the second of those books. There's a lot of controversy in there. It's almost as if he sort of chronicle all the tough, hard, controversial, um, you know, elements of our past. Do you, do you feel like that's an unfair characterization uh, of the series, or do you think that, well, that that just makes it is what makes it fascinating? I mean, that's that's not certainly what the first book is. The first book covers you know, a lot of things, but and some of them might seem controversial. Others are quite familiar, and others are very definitely positive. I think there are some positive elements in the second book as well. For me, the thing that was really powerful about the books was the fact that um, it was willing to, they, they're willing that, that Quinn so frankly and directly addresses the, the fact that, you know, it's a human organization. We talk about that a lot. It's a human organization that has divine power invested in it, but humans are still in it, running it, and they're going to do human things. And for Quinn to be able to go through and show that in a way that, that doesn't attack faith was really strengthening for me. You know, like a lot of people, I, I ran into some of the human aspects of the church during my mission and saw the way that the organization can function sometimes a little less perfectly than we'd like. And to, to see a study that systematically put that in perspective really helped me. And so for, that, for me, that, that can be really valuable. Yeah, I, I guess you could maybe view this book as the great inoculation um, <laughs> ag- against... Against uh, organizational issues that might cause someone to struggle, because it really does just show that these are these are good men doing their best to get things right, but sometimes even amongst themselves they struggle. Uh, I'll just say, just as a tidbit, one of the most fascinating things I read in that second book was in 1968. Apparently, um, when when uh, David O. McKay wasn't feeling well or was ill. It says in this book, and Jay, correct me if I'm wrong, that Hubie Brown actually held a vote on granting the blacks the priesthood in 1968. Yes. And, and uh, it actually passed because Harold B. Lee was out of town. Harold B. Lee was out of town and David O. McKay wasn't present. And when Harold B. Lee came back, he was able to reverse the vote. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Quinn talks about that. It's also discussed in other places. So that that's probably a legitimate episode in Mormon history, yeah. Yeah, so that's the type of cool things you might find if you're interested in that kind of stuff. So anyway, good recommendation, Jay, for a kickoff. David, do you have any books that give a good survey on Mormonism? Um, I didn't address it from a survey point of view, but more from, uh, you know, going into... Yeah, more topical. Topical. That's okay. I'll just say that there's a couple that I would throw out there. When Leonard Arrington um, was church historian... He put together um, a book called "The Story of the Latter Day Saints." Is that is that what it's called, Jay? Is that do you remember that book? Uh, yes, that's right. I it's think a, it's a really good, just sort of one volume survey of of LDS Church history um, with with Davis Bitten. That's right, and there's a there's actually a couple editions. Apparently, the first edition. Sorry, it's it's the Mormon Experience. Okay, the Story of the Latter Day Saints is um, Allen and Leonard. Right. Arrington okay, and okay, Bitten. Okay, is. good, good, good. Yes, both of those books I've read. Um, the Story of the Latter-day Saints is a really good survey of just Mormon history. The first edition was actually a little bit controversial, and they actually 
made a lot of changes to it. So if you can get a, a copy of the first edition of the story of the Latter-day Saints, you'll get a very remarkably candid and good survey of Mormon history um, that was written in the 70s. There's probably some new stuff that could be added, but I found that to be a good book. I also read Mormon Experience. Did you read that, Jay? Yeah, it's a good book. Yeah, it's a good book. It's, it's, but it looks at things socially and culturally as well as uh, historically, but that's a good one. Um, in addition... Uh, have, have either of you read Mormon America by Austin? The, the Ostling book? Yeah. 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 I, I actually found that to be quite informative, although not necessarily apologetic or, you know, uh, you know, the story that the church would tell. Did, did either of you read that and like it or not like it? Yeah, I thought it was fine. Not, not great. How about you, David? <laughs> it, it I didn't read it. Um, but, I mean, my introduction to survey Mormon history, because I don't read a lot of survey books, was uh, a book that a lot of people have a similar opinion about is that one, which is the Tanner's book, Mormonism, Shadow of Reality. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you, you found that early in, your, uh, early in your adult life, right? Yeah, which I just think is um, the, by far the most thorough introduction to basically uh, <laughs> every Mormon historical event that uh, raises any amount of interest among Mormons. Now, David, you know, you've it's one-upped it's Jay. Thorough. You, you've mm-hmm. one-upped Jay. Jay pulls out Quinn. You pull out the Tanners. Sorry, uh, I didn't mean to play top that sin here. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> i just like to remind our listeners that Jay and David are both active, faithful members of the church, in spite of the, the books recommended. No, but do you... And can I actually point out that, that one of the things that D. Michael Quinn is famous for having written was an anonymous rebuttal to um, D.K.L. David's um, choice of a book here, so... <laughs> yeah, and uh, let me just add, I mean, I, I that's part of what I've read personally, but I would not actually recommend that as an introduction because although it's uh, thorough, it definitely has an axe to grind. Mm-hmm. It's very polemically written. I don't believe that it's inaccurate or that it is slanderous, but it's um, written from the point of view of people that really don't see anything good about Mormonism. And so it's not a good introduction. It's not written the way that Quinn is written, where he's taking a scholarly point of view. He's writing about humans and trying to contextualize things. Yeah, Okay. Well, well, Dave, tell us one of your one or two of your thematic books that that you uh, wanted to share. Um, well, I've categorized them into kind of uh, beginner books and more advanced books. And uh, in the beginner books, I would um, classify uh, Bushman's nineteen eighty four biography of Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism. Yeah, I'd actually mm-hmm. recommend that before I'd recommend his recent biography, which includes almost all of the. Uh, 1984 biography, just because it's shorter, it's easier, it covers enough of Joseph Smith um, to get you involved in that. Um, and then also, as a, continua- as a continuation of that, Arrington's 1969 biography on Brigham Young, or I guess it was 74, Brigham Young, American Moses. Oh, yeah. Have you read that? Yeah, it's terrific. It's yes. very good. Um, and it's very likely to be the definitive biography of Brigham Young for some time, just because of the subsequent changes to access by historians to the church documents. <laughs> Do you remember? Um, well, it's also marvelously written. I mean, there's something to be said for that. Hey, David, yes. do, you remember, do you remember a story or two from that book that would give people a flavor for what they'll learn about Brigham Young that they didn't already know? Or is that putting you on the spot? Oh, that kind of puts me on the oh, spot. Okay, sorry, yeah. sorry. Jay, but, Jay, do you um, remember? I mean, one of the things, he's a Yankee woodworker, you know, and he talks about that. There's yeah, photos right. in it. I, I found fascinating photographs of, of uh, 
wooden things that he made that the church still owns in its museum. And it's um, interesting to see him that way because, for example, in the new movie they're coming out with September Dawn, they have this authoritative guy speaking in an English accent, which is completely foreign from who he was. Um, one thing I found out was interesting was uh, that um, Heber J. Grant was called to be the first young men's president, um, you know, the MIA at the time, Mutual Improvement Association. Heber J. Grant talked about once when Brigham Young came to a dance and actually danced. And uh, he said he danced with vigor, but not with grace, <laughs> as you may well imagine. But, uh, it, and apparently he did not like the waltz. So he um, came to a dance, saw that they were dancing the waltz, and he chastised Heber J. Grant for allowing the kids to dance to the waltz in Utah. <laughs> so that's that was a, an issue for decades, yeah. Dancing? Well, it's, a, it's not a good well, dance. The waltz, no, I, my children won't be dancing the waltz, and uh, I doubt that yours will either, Jay. No, that's true. My, mine will probably be dancing strange evolutions of hip-hop that I can't even imagine. <laughs> right. The, the crump. The crump. <laughs> hey, um, well, oh, go ahead, Jay. No, 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 that's fine. So uh, that's American Moses by Leonard Arrington on Brigham Young and mm-hmm. Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Early Mormonism by Richard Bushman. I have to say... I read um, Richard Bushman's book, the the one you just mentioned, right in the sort of, uh, I don't know if it's the apex or the zenith or whatever, of my, you know, awareness of church history. That was a really hard book for me hmm. because it, it was so candid about things like um, the, the treasure seeking. I had always written off the treasure seeking to anti-Mormonism. Mm-hmm. And when I, you know, I had even read Fawn Brody and sort of took everything that Fawn Brody wrote, you know, um, uh, uh, what's the book? Uh, no Man Knows My History. No Man Knows that's, actually, History. that's another book on my list that's on the second list, which is the more advanced kind of. Yeah, well, I was just going to say I that, love that. Me too. I love that book. Oh, and Bushman, <laughs> yeah, and Bushman actually raves about it. Um, well, it, part, the anti-treasure-seeking litany uh, is part of the apologetic streak that springs from the anti-Brody. Um, yeah era of apologetics, and that quickly ends in 1969 when Wesley Walters finds the court record that shows that he was arrested in Pennsylvania and tried right. for treasure-seeking. Right, or, 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 um, and finds documents that corroborate it. Um, Hugh Nibley at the time said that if that court record were genuine, it was the worst evidence ever against Mormonism. Uh-oh. But um, I think we have he, a had to, more he had to back up on that. I'm sure he changed yeah. his mind. Well, I was just going to say that because I knew that Bushman had been a stake president and a patriarch, that 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 um, his book, Joseph Smith and Beginnings of Early Mormonism, actually challenged my testimony more than Fawn Brody did. Does that seem preposterous <laughs> to you guys? No, not at all. Yeah. No, I, well, I mean, it's easy, it's easy to write off the outsider. Yeah. Although Fun Brody wasn't really an outsider, but that's another story. Right, right. Okay, those are good books. Jay, do you have any others uh, in sort of that category that, that David mentions? Sort of the, one, one, level deep, one level deeper kind of books beyond the survey? Uh, yeah, actually, I do. Um, you know, one of the strangely least appreciated topics in Mormonism for, for um, Mormon readers is theology. You would think that would be something we'd spend a lot of time thinking about, but it just isn't. And, you know, one of the great thinkers and writers about Mormon theology, who I think is just a great 
sort of place to start is Douglas Davies. I'd recommend really strongly his book, The Mormon Culture of Salvation, Force, Grace, and Glory, as a way to sort of start thinking seriously in, in an outsider-friendly way, in a serious kind of intellectual way, about Mormon theology. You know, D- Davies is not a Mormon, but he writes Mormonism as well as any of us, and it's just a great read. All right, Jay, uh, we'll, we'll definitely note that one. Any others? Yeah, another book at that same level that I want to mention is actually probably my favorite book about Mormonism, which is it's the uh, another book by Arrington and Bitten and Leonard Arrington and Davis Bitten, Beyond the Mormon Experience. This was a book they wrote that was published in 1981 by Signature Books called Saints Without Halos: The Human Side of Mormon History. Now, from the title, it might sound like some kind of debunking thing, but what it really is is a kind of picture of the church from the point of view of a whole bunch of people's life stories. And these are life stories of people who were never apostles, people who were never in the top leadership of the church, but who were important in one one phase or another of the church's development. So you get people like Joseph Knight, um, Charles Walker, who wrote wonderfully, um, wonderfully very... 19th century um, poems in St. George while helping build the temple, and down in through T. Edgar Lyon and a whole bunch of others. And it's just, for me, a really wonderful, powerful, moving way of looking at our tradition to sort of see all of these people we don't talk about that often and, and see how they fit into the picture too. The one criticism I would have of it, if anything, is that um, it ought to have more women's stories. Out of, I think, 18 stories, there are three women who, who get a full-life narrative in it. That, that, four women, I'm sorry. And that, that's not good enough, obviously. But um, to put the spotlight just for you know, this one book on the story of Mormons who never were general authorities is, is worthwhile. I'd highly recommend the book. All right. Saints Without Halos. Very good. Um, so I, I think I had one or two books I wanted to throw in here um, as sort of general topic books that are sort of one level deeper than the survey. I guess, I guess I'd have to include David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism. Do either of you have that on your list? I don't. It's a good book. Um, yeah. I, I'm a big fan of it because I find it an interesting read. His, his portion on sort of um, David O. McKay's commitment to intellectual integrity and openness where he talks about Fon Brody. He talks about um, Bruce R. McConkie and Mormon doctrine. You know, that may not have been new news to you guys, but uh, to me, it was a fascinating read. His talk about blacks in the priesthood and how David O. McKay struggled with that. His portions on uh, Ezra Taft Benson and his involvements with the John Birch Society and how that led to him potentially being sent off to Great Britain. You know, there was a lot of very fascinating stuff in there that was written tastefully, um, but very informatively for me. Um, mm-hmm. did, did you guys have reactions to that book that were different than mine? No, I, I think it's a very good book. Um, it it, it a which is that most of its material comes from one primary source, uh, David O. McKay's office secretary. Does anyone remember her name? I've suddenly blanked it right now. Uh, Claire, Claire Middlemiss. Claire Middlemiss, exactly, yeah. yeah. And um, there are some primary sources out there that indicate that people other than Claire Middlemiss and David O. McKay saw her as, as a player with an agenda. And so, so there may be some, some you points of agenda? view. with an agenda? Yeah, with an agenda, exactly. Oh, okay, so. And so there may be some points of view about the McKay presidency that aren't fully reflected in, in her journals, which are the, the basis for that book. Right. But within that limitation, it's, it's, it's good. 
Yeah, that's a good book. Um, a couple others I wanted to throw out. Uh, one of them is called A Thoughtful Faith. And um, I don't have the book with me, uh, but it's basically a collection of essays of thoughtful, scholarly, sort of dialogue-type Mormons, including Richard Bushman. I think Claudia Bushman's in there. Richard Paul. Richard Paul, yes. His, his essay, his classic essay on what the church means to people like me. But that was a very important formative book for me as I was sort of shedding my traditional testimony and trying to gain one that could reconcile a thought with faith. So for those of you looking for some inspirational but thoughtful essays on that sort of topic, I highly recommend A Thoughtful Faith. It's probably out of print, but you can probably get it through like uh, Benchmark Books, um, for example. Um, And I have to (laughs) throw in The Backslider. Mm. Any of you guys read The Backslider? Yeah, I love The Backslider. David, have you read it yet? I haven't read it yet. Oh my gosh, David, go read The Backslider. I, I kind of think of that as the best John Steinbeck-like novel we'll probably ever see for Mormonism. It's written by Levi Peterson, and it's basically just about um, a cowboy in southern Utah who's trying to... Um, trying to become more righteous, trying to live as his parents taught him to, and and finding all sorts of interesting dilemmas and um, subtleties and nuances in, in his challenge. But it's a it's a fun read. It's an interesting read. It's, sometimes it's a shocking read. But uh, The Backslider is a major thumbs up. Yeah, I've got to agree with you there. Levi Peterson is, is one of my heroes. He, he's a saint to me. Yeah, Taryn and I had the opportunity to meet him a few months ago. We got our copy autographed. Great experience. And definitely, absolutely read the book. All right. Well, with that, uh, you know, since we've gone on to sort of topical, one level deeper than survey kind of books, do you guys have any other books like that before we go into sort of maybe the most challenging types of reads? No, we're good. Okay, David, we, we mentioned uh, No Man Knows My History early on, but you had that listed. Why don't you go into a little more about that book? Because I can tell you that it's probably one of the most despised books um, in Mormon lore, but at the same time, it's it's very well respected in, in circles that we would all sort of respect as well. So tell us your thoughts on that book. Well, I think it's important to point out that it's the first major work in the field of what we currently know as Mormon studies. And it it invented the Joseph Smith biography. Marvin Hill said in 1971, um, for more than a quarter century, Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History has been recognized by most professional American historians as the standard work on the life of Joseph Smith and perhaps the most important single work on early Mormonism. And uh, she really did a service to Mormonism in writing it by writing a critical, a credible biography of Joseph Smith. It puts him on the map as a legitimate figure of historical importance. Um, the theory at the time that she wrote it was that Joseph Smith was a charismatic front man for Sidney Rigdon, who created the church and provided Joseph Smith with the manuscript that he plagiarized to make the Book of Mormon, even though that, that theory, the evidence that discredited it had been discovered in 1893 in 19 biographies written by non-Mormons between that time and the time that Fawn Brody wrote her biography, not one of them repudiated the theory. So she's the one that, that torpedoed the, the plagiarism theory for the origin of the Book of Mormon, arguing that Joseph is a legitimate historical figure. Um, and uh, 
I think it is gaining respect among Mormons. I went to the MHA conference in Vermont a few years back, and the panel on Joseph Smith biography, everybody agreed, BYU professors, everybody that was on the panel agreed that her bias was for Joseph Smith and not against him. And, Even uh, though she claimed he was sort of a fraud. Well, yeah, I mean, she's, she's clearly very enchanted by him. She doesn't believe in his prophetic mission. And I think that's where a lot of Mormons... Um, have a disconnect, and there's the insider-outsider thing going on there. She's not really an outsider. She used to be one of us, and then she's denying him. And I think people take that more personally than if she were just an outsider, because obviously the people we work with think that Joseph Smith is a fraud, too, to the extent that they're not Mormons. Yeah, and so she, um, it's worth mentioning, maybe you mentioned that she was David O. McKay's niece, and because she was his niece, she was granted almost unfettered access to church archives. Is that right? My understanding, reading her interview in uh, dialogue, I believe that occurred in the 80s, was that she was offered that, and uh, she didn't accept all of it because she wasn't. She didn't want to feel like uh, she didn't want her uncle to feel like she was taking advantage of him. She's um, a fa- she's a fascinating woman because, you know, she was one of the people that sort of first uh, substantively argued that Thomas Jefferson had fathered children with his one of his slaves and um, she was able to establish that I think by going back meticulously in the historical record and showing when he was in uh, you know when he was at Monticello and when when these babies were likely born and and since then it seems as though I've heard that DNA has actually vindicated her allegations when she was originally sort of just accused of being sort of a yellow journalist for uh or a, or a tabloid historian is that? Do I have that right, guys? Jay, have you heard any of that? Yeah, that that's right. That's right. I mean, well, she, she was able to argue that she didn't establish it in the sense that that there was a lively controversy after she published, and there were other people who agreed with that position at the time, even. But she certainly did make a forceful statement that he had fathered these people, and and he did. Yeah. And that was indicative to her approach to history, which was really groundbreaking. She looked at historical figures from the point of view that people didn't look at them before. And she did that with Thomas Jefferson, and I think she's been vindicated with that. She did that with Joseph Smith. I think that um, whether uh, Mormons realize it or not, they've been, you know, she's been vindicated by Anita Hill's subsequent biography. She's a faithful Don- Donahill? Was that Donahill? Donahill, thank you. <laughs> Very different Donahill. <laughs> her biography and uh, Richard Bushman, both of his biographies, um, uh, do a lot to vindicate her from a Mormon point of view. Um, as far as her biography, of well, some are kind of some are turned off by the psychoanalysis that she tries to employ. If you guys have any thoughts on that, yeah, I have strong feelings about that because, from my point of view, it's okay to editorialize when you write history. It's just important to make sure that it's clear when you're editorializing and when you're actually pretending to write real history. And she demarcates that fairly readily. And so as long as she's making sure to express, from my point of view, this is what I think Joseph Smith is doing or thinking, I see it as completely harmless. And I actually value her opinion as someone who's educated in that and has something that she wants to express. Um, and, you know, it's something that obviously, um, as a reader of the book, she sets me up to be in a position to agree with or disagree with. So I think it's perfectly scholarly to, for it to occur within that framework. Jay, do you share I'm gonna David's go, view? I'm, I'm going to go a step further than that. I think that that's one of the things that she's done that no one else has matched up to. You know, she she is willing to 
offer an interpretation of who Joseph Smith was, what he was feeling and thinking, what these events meant to him. And that's that's a kind of curtain that, that other biographers have mostly not been willing to sort of pull aside. They, there's, there's a kind of respectful distance that most of our biographers have kept where they don't want to offer an interpretation of Joseph Smith. They want to offer us the, the record of events. They'll offer interpretations of the meaning of those events, but they don't want to give us a, a Joseph. They don't want to give us a personality and a character there. And, you know, Fawn Brody gave us a real, you know, beating heart, pulsing, sweating, vibrant person in Joseph Smith. And that's one of the things that makes her book so readable in comparison with many of the other biographies out there. I think that, you know, it's one of the, one of the things that a historian has a responsibility to do is interpret the subjects. Well, I emphatically agree with that. And I think her book is the single most readable book in Mormon studies to this day. If you want to know who yeah. Joseph Smith is and get a picture of who he is, even though so much has, has happened since that clarifies and adds detail, hers is still the one to read. Well, and you know, it, one way of looking at the last 60 years of Mormon studies regarding, you know, the early years and Joseph Smith is that it's been a 60-year process of faithful Mormons coming to grips with what Fawn Brody told us. A lot of what she had to say that was controversial at the time has been reaffirmed. There are areas where she was wrong and mistakes that she made, but she was surprisingly often accurate. Well, let me just say that... Um you know, I have to sort of throw up an alarm, a cautionary alarm, because I think there are many, many people who would sort of say that this book has devastated or eviscerated traditional Mormon testimonies. I mean, because it, it talks about it talks about uh, polyandry, it talks about young brides, it talks about Joseph pressuring young brides into marrying him. Uh, you know, it, it basically paints him as a fraud. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I don't know how to really position this, but it's, you know, you guys are so seemingly positive about the book, yet I can tell you that I would never recommend it to someone who sort of considered their testimony uh, something of value because I think <laughs> that a, a testimony has a, a, a traditional LDS testimony has an extremely hard time surviving no man knows my history. In my experience, now that, John, doesn't, that doesn't mean it can't be rebuilt. Yeah, but now, your, your John, testimony will never be the same. I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's certainly not the first book I'd recommend. But at the same time, I, if we can't read people we don't agree with, th then there's something wrong. You know, we we ought to be able to have conversations with people who think things that are different from what we think. She thinks he's a fraud. I think he's a prophet. But I can still have a conversation and engage with her. I think that's okay. I agree, and I think the shortcoming isn't that um, people read the book and it devastates their testimony. I think that there's often a lack of ability to communicate about testimonies among Mormons, so that the fact that elements of a testimony uh, feel, you know, from one period of time to another weaker or stronger um, is, ends up being something that can isolate someone from other Mormons, rather than be something that they engage other Mormons to discuss. And if somebody read Font Brody, um, I would and found it troubling to their faith. I would love to talk to them about it and kind of find out why, not necessarily to argue with them or convince them otherwise. Uh, but I don't think that there's a lot of that kind of discussion going on. I think that's more responsible for the devastating aspects of uh, stories like that, things that you mentioned in Bushman's biography, than than any actual content. Jay, did you have a reaction? 
Um, I, I already talked, okay. I think. Yeah, so so you guys are of the opinion that testimony should be like jackhammers. We shouldn't treat them like soap bubbles. You should confront the issues head on, learn them, become familiar with them, and have good, candid conversations. I guess you guys are two living testimonies, or maybe three of us are living testimonies, that a testimony that Joseph can be inspired and a prophet in, in spite of his flaws, even as so colorfully articulated in Fawn Brody's book, I guess it's clearly possible to emerge with the with the testimony of that. But you guys wouldn't have any warnings or cautions at all, other than it not be the first book you read. I mean, yeah. I think that the, the, yeah, I, I think that there's you 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 can overemphasize the the weakness and negativity in that book. One thing that you can come away from that book with, and that I really did, was was an impression of how really strong and just vibrant a person, a personality, how enduring Joseph Smith really was, what he was able to go through and just keep on going. And I think that's something that she really captures in that book, as well as anything else that might be troubling. Yeah, I completely agree. I was never really excited about Joseph Smith as an individual until I read her book. Yeah, and I'll just add, I gained much more respect for Joseph than I ever had before. It did not leave me thinking he was lame. It made me more impressed with him as an individual than anything, than Truman Madsen or anything else I had ever experienced. Uh, you leave that book thinking he was one of the most amazing men in in the 19th or even 20th century in America, you know? At least that's how I felt, so. All right. Well, let's uh, let's throw it out there. Any other challenging books um, that you guys would recommend to people who really want to, uh, you know, um, dig in? Um, I'd recommend the Mountain Meadows Massacre by Juanita Brooks. That's a classic. Yeah, you, you just uh, you just have to read it. You just have to. Yeah, it's it's uh, again, it's another one of the first major works of what we currently consider to be Mormon studies, and um, I think one of the things. Uh, that she accomplishes as a faithful Mormon, as opposed to Fawn Brody, someone who moved on, is she actually defines this tone where she addresses a dark moment in church history in a manner that's both candid and sympathetic. And she seems to have created the formula in which other Mormon historians are able to do that kind of thing. I think Bushman's the easiest example. Um, And the formula is you lay out the the facts unapologetically with a strong emphasis on context and human element. And... um, you know, not only that, but Juanita Brooks, I think, is just such an amazing personal story because she's widowed after one year of marriage. Her, fa- her husband dies of cancer. She becomes a single mother. That's before she works her way through college, getting her bachelor's degree from BYU. Then she gets a master's from Columbia and then goes on to become one of the seminal figures in creating Mormon studies. Actually, on that topic, I'd, I'd throw out that um, someone we mentioned earlier, um, Levi Peterson has a beautiful biography of her, Juanita Brooks, Mormon Woman Historian, which is which is a nice book. Good. Yeah, well, that's definitely a classic. And, and uh, Juanita Brooks didn't have it easy after writing that book. So it's definitely, there's a story behind the story that's fascinating. That actually leads me to well, a quick, oh, go ahead. Sorry, can ahead, I, I, Please. of everything we've mentioned on this show, I am going to say that I think um, Brooks's book is the most emotionally difficult. You know, you, you can talk about... Um, about uh, Fawn Brody or the Tanners or whatever, but but Juanita Brooks is is making us come face to face with a moment when we as a people did something really ugly, and it's it's a hard read in that sense. It's 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 emotional and grueling, but it's really important. Has it been 
substantively invalidated by new historical facts, or has it stood the test of time pretty, pretty strongly? Well, I mean, you know, these things do move along, and there are a lot of documents that are available now that weren't available then. And so we have, you know, a series of other books, some very poor, some pretty good, that have come out since, and another couple of books coming out with, with church participation in the next few years. But most of what she has to say still, as far as I know, is seen as fairly accurate. I mean, it's, 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 it continues to be a book that people read, not just cite. Sure. And it's also, if you want any one book, any one book on the topic, that's the one to read. Okay. Um, the other ones that cover it add some additional information, but she has still the most comprehensive viewpoint of it, and has yet to be superseded in that fashion. Right. Um, and a lot of the documents that, you know, that, um, that have come forth since, frankly, you know, they've come forth because of her. Because yes. she made it a topic of study, and um, and she has over time earned the respect of the mainstream church and of church leaders in terms of her the way that she addresses this dark moment in a way that's candid and sympathetic, and um, you know when you compare her books to some of the more salacious books about the Mountain Meadows massacre, it's very clear that if the church is going to have a voice about this kind of a moment in its history, it wants people like Juanita Brooks writing it, and not. Um, fringe historians who want to talk conspiracy theories with, you know, Brigham Young. Right. Absolutely. Well, and it's also worth pointing out that Juanita Brooks's book not only has moved the intellectual debate and has moved the church in the direction of, you know, being more engaging on this issue, but has also undone some of the scapegoating that was done in the 19th century. In particular, John D. Lee, who was given responsibility for the whole event and was the only person actually ever punished for it what his his excommunication was reversed because of her work so so this is this is a book that's moved spiritual ground as well as intellectual ground well that's brilliant well let's um we're we're coming up on uh we're coming up on the close of the program so let's just give you guys each a chance to throw out a couple more of the books that you had in your list and make a quick plug for them i may have one book and then we'll move on to the close so we'll start dave then jay Mine is a, another fictional book, um, and it's The Giant Joshua. It's out of print, but it's written by Maureen Whipple, and it's uh, a fictional story about settlers of St. George, and it's the, um, written from the point of view of, the, of one of the older polygamous wives of one of the settlers. And it's a great, even though it's fictional, it's a great introduction to kind of getting inside the head of how polygamous marriages work and... Um, you know, a lot of the very tragic aspects that um, made people, a lot of people, relieved that polygamy, practicers of polygamy, that made them relieved that, they, that we got rid of it. Okay. Anything else, David, or is that, is that your last book? That's my last one. Okay, good. Giant Joshua. All right, Jay, anything else you got on your list? Well, I'm going to throw out the last of the three founding classics of Mormon studies. We've got Fon Brody. We've got... Um, We've got the Mountain Meadows Massacre, Juanita Brooks. The third one is um, Leonard Arrington's Great Basin Kingdom, which is, as far as I know, still the best single-volume economic history of 19th century Mormonism. And in conjunction with those other two works, really established the kind of neutral intellectual tone that's made Mormon studies something that both Mormons and non-Mormons can read and, and talk about. Great Basin Kingdom. That's what that that book's what got him uh, the position as church historian, wouldn't you say? Yeah, there's an interesting story about that, which is when he first went in as church historian to the church archives and um, went into their library, they had a section in the, the library for anti-Mormon books, and he found that Great Basin Kingdom was filed as an anti-Mormon book. 
in the church's <laughs> library. So the, one of these moments. Yeah. I think Joseph Fielding Smith was church historian at the time. Is that right? Well, they, 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 it was said that they filed it there because it wasn't specifically faith-promoting, and if you're not with us, you're against us. Right, so. right, right. Well, I, I, I hate for us to be too Leonard Arrington heavy, but I just <laughs> have to throw in um, a book that, that was very important for me. It's called Adventures of a Church Historian. It's sort of an autobiography of Leonard Arrington, and it just chronicles his early years as a historian, but most importantly, those famous 10 years, sort of the Camelot years of church history from 1972 to 1982, where, um, where he talks about the, the joys and the challenges of trying to write candid, thoughtful, uh, respectable, scholarly history um, within, um, within the church office building. So it's a, it, the ending is a little bit sad, but uh, you know I think it's also important to understand that that he, he states very clearly that in spite of having sort of unparalleled access as a historian to church archives, he says he never saw anything that, uh, that made him uh, fundamentally challenge his testimony. So I guess it's a, safe, it's a safe book to read and a great book to read. Any, any of you guys read that book? I just want to throw in, you know, we, we've talked a lot about Leonard Arrington. I, I may personally have a testimony of Levi Peterson, but my wife says that she has a testimony of Arrington. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Well, you, uh, I'll, I'm going to ask uh, David and Jay if you guys would mind sending me an email. We'll put uh, we'll put links to all these books up on the up on the blog post so that we can actually have them easily easily accessible for people to uh, to purchase or to uh, obtain. Do you guys mind doing that? Be happy to. Okay, no problem. So, One or two of the books are available online too. So. Oh yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll get that list up soon. Want to thank you guys. Uh, this is a great set of. Uh, end of summer reading and maybe may even stretch into the fall. What do you guys think in terms of our reading lists <laughs> for our listeners? Let's go ahead and, and wrap up. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in. It's time for our famed end of show rant where uh, each of our panelists will rant about something. So let's go ahead and throw it out to uh, Jay and then David. Go ahead, Jay. I'm sorry. Could David go first? I'm not ready. Okay, David. <laughs> I meant David first and then Jay. Of course. Um, as I was thinking about these books, uh, I kind of put together a list on the side of books not to read. And at the top of that list was Crack Hours Under the Banner of Heaven. And although he has a candid and affable writing style that makes him accessible and likable and builds credibility with the reader, nearly every time he discusses Mormonism, he gets it wrong. Everything from claiming that, um, you know, the word of wisdom uh, bars premarital sex to, um, you know, getting the secession description of the Twelve Apostles wrong. Um, you know, he really doesn't uh, display any kind of knowledge of the topics that he's discussing, um, mostly just parroting conventional wisdom to the extent that he is correct. Um, and uh, a thoroughly disappointing book, and I uh, recommend against it. Okay. Uh, a, a recommendation against uh, Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer. Jay, you ready yet, or do you need me to yeah, give you a little more set. time? All right, go ahead, no, Jay. All set. So I want to talk a little bit about the interior design and architecture of our chapels. And the reason for this is, you know, for the last month and a half or so, my ward has been meeting in a, a an evangelical seminary on, on a campus near our place because our, our, state, our ward building is under construction and there isn't another LDS building near enough. So we've been meeting in this chapel with beautiful stained glass, wonderful, you know, paneling, a nice vaulted ceiling, and a giant 
stained glass image of the Savior right above the, the podium where speakers meet. This room has lively acoustics, and it brings everyone's attention together. There's just a much more reverent and spiritual atmosphere than we get in a standard LDS um, meeting house, which is lower, not as um, focused towards the podium, and has no... Um, beautiful decorations to draw our eyes in and has deadening acoustics which allow people to have their own conversations off on the side without disrupting anyone i would love it if we could borrow some of the ideas from our religious brothers and sisters and build some more spiritual buildings more spiritual buildings that's good all right well thank you jay thank you david um i guess i'll i'll close uh i'll close with um so, uh, sort of uh, my congratulations or, or credit where credit is due. Those of you who uh, happen to subscribe to the church news will notice that over the past six to eight weeks, the church has been showing an amazing amount of candor in how it's tried to deal with all sorts of issues that just five or ten years ago probably would have never been covered in, a, in in something like the church news. But it's covered the Mountain Meadows Massacre. It's covered the multiple versions of the first hist, uh, first vision story. It's covered homosexuality and, and living as a single person in the church. Um, of course, we have many of the top church leaders appearing in Helen Whitney's documentary. And uh, I would just like to sort of throw out uh, some uh, kudos to the church, frankly, for what seems to be a new level of candor and openness about church history. And um, I guess you could even add on top of that uh, the new two-year manual on Joseph Smith. And uh, from what I've heard, it too shows a new level of candor and openness about church history that we haven't seen in any of the previous manuals. So that's my shout-out to say uh, way to go, LDS Church, for, uh, you know, for uh, hitting the stuff head on and, and doing its best to uh, to help us all understand the history more accurately. So anyway, um, Jay and David, I just want to thank you guys so much um, for uh, coming on the show. Uh, you guys are always fascinating. So thank you again. Well, thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. Well, this uh, wraps up. I want to give uh, also a shout out to Ann Porter, who has been our uh, director slash uh, producer for this episode she's quietly worked behind the scenes to tell us when we were rambling and uh, when we needed to move on and so Anne, uh, thanks so much uh, for coming on and helping us out as well and we'd like to encourage you all to join us at mormonmatters.org to uh, see um, the list of these books that we've listed as well as to have a conversation about other books that uh, you also want to recommend to each other Uh, We'll have upcoming episodes as well, but please feel free to check us out at mormonmatters.org and also feel free to email us at mormonmatters at gmail.com. And without any further ado, thanks again for tuning in and we look forward to talking with you next week. Take care. This earth was once a garden place with all her glories common And men did live a holy race and worship Jesus face to face in Adam on thy Amen. We read that Enoch walked with God above the power of Mammon, while Zion spread herself abroad, and saints and angels sang aloud, In Adam on thy Amen. 
Her land was good and greatly blessed beyond all Israel's Canaan. Her fame was known from east to west, her peace was great and pure the rest of Adam on thy Amen. To hear more of this wonderful music, please check out ClaytonPixton.com. That's C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-P-I-X-T-O-N.com. Thank you very much. To hear more of this wonderful music, please check out ClaytonPixton.com. That's C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-P-I-X-T-O-N.com. Thank you very much.